This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Madeline Jenner, coming to you from Sydney on Gadigal land. Welcome to This Week. After seven weeks of fighting, a rare moment of hope. The Israeli government has voted to back a deal that secures the release of 50 hostages held in Gaza. That would be in return for a four-day ceasefire and the freeing of dozens of Palestinian prisoners by Israel. The pause in fighting will also allow more aid to be delivered. And for people in Gaza, it can't come soon enough. The people are looking forward to this uh, ceasefire. Four days of quietness, not explosions, no noise, no killing, no death. I am uh, more than 45 days now far from my home. I don't know what happened to my home. Not all the hostages will be freed, leaving some families desperate to know when they might see their loved ones or if they're even still alive. It's difficult to know that he's not the first in line, but we do understand it, but we are not going to give up. But ceasefires are always complicated and this one is no exception. Oh, it's definitely very, very precarious. And what makes it even more precarious is that whilst Hamas was very keen on agreeing to the ceasefire, Israel was not. Dr Rob Geist-Pinfold is a lecturer in peace and security at Durham University. Uh, The reason that Israel agreed to it is because it has two conflicting aims in this conflict. Uh, The first of those aims, which is under tremendous public pressure to do, is to release all of the hostages. Uh, On the other hand, it faces a dilemma of the fact that it's under tremendous public pressure to defeat Hamas. And indeed, the government has declared that its aim here is to defeat Hamas, not just to defeat them militarily, but to remove them from power in the Gaza Strip. And obviously, a ceasefire will get some of the hostages released, but obviously that will mean that the status quo is frozen for the time that the ceasefire remains. So as long as there's a ceasefire, Hamas remains in power in at least some, and indeed, uh, from the look of things at the moment, in most, in control of most of the Gaza Strip. Now, uh, I guess at the moment they've deprioritized or at least delayed the defeat of Hamas in favor of getting as many of those hostages released as possible. With what we're seeing at the moment, um, it should be at least 50 hostages. And if the truce is indeed extended, it could be up to 80 hostages that are released. And what do we know about the Palestinians that will be released as part of this deal? Yeah, so um, these are people who, uh, who do not have direct blood on their hands. I, they have to have not killed any Israelis, and they are almost entirely women and children. Uh, the majority of them will have been arrested for kind of, um, I guess, more minor offences, minor, you know, in quotation marks, things like, for example, rock throwing. Uh, but there are people there who have been arrested for attempted murder. For example, there are a couple of female uh, Palestinians there who have attempted to stab Israelis. They failed, and as a result, they've gone to jail. But obviously, there's no one here who has been directly responsible for the killing of any Israelis. Now, obviously, um, if we look further down the line, we're going to be running out of those kind of Palestinian prisoners. And if if there is another hostage exchange there might be demands to release Palestinian prisoners with blood on their hands, and that will be significantly more controversial and a much more bitter pill for Israel's public to swallow. So under the initial deal, it's 50 Israeli hostages in exchange for 150 Palestinian women and teenagers. It's not exactly equal. Why are these numbers being agreed to? Do we have any sense of that? 
Well, um, it's it's never normally equal simply because Israel has a lot of Palestinian detainees in its jails. Normally, the Palestinians do not have a lot of uh, of Israeli hostages or detainees. Uh, previously, for example, in the Gilad Shalit deal, the ratio was much more weighted in favour of the Palestinians uh, when that was one Israeli hostage who was released previously. Currently, um, it, the, the, the deck has shifted somewhat in that, yes, the Palestinians have more hostages, but at the same time, Hamas is under significantly more pressure than it ever has been before. Fuel and supplies are running out if they haven't already run out um, amongst much of Gaza's Palestinian population. We've got potentially 13,000 Palestinian dead. So Hamas is under significant pressure uh, to come to a deal with Israel over the hostages. Hamas wants a ceasefire because it wants that lull in fighting, at least so it can rearm and re-equip itself for the next phase. And both sides seem in agreement at the moment, by the way, that this is not a ceasefire that will lead to a political solution. Unfortunately, at the moment, you know, the deck may shift in the next few days, but at the moment, it looks like both sides are committed to resuming the fighting. And from what we're seeing at the moment, the deal specifically says that the ceasefire will last for a maximum of 10 days before both sides go back to fighting, which was an Israeli demand because Israel does not want that status quo frozen in place. It wants a temporary law to get out as many hostages as it can, whilst um, it also wants to be ready to be able to go back to the fighting uh, after the ceasefire ends, because Israel will obviously, it'll be much harder for Israel to restart the fighting once it has stopped. So it'll be under tremendous political pressure from externally, from the international community to extend its ceasefire, but Israel definitively does not want to do that. There are plenty of external players here, and of course one has been Qatar, which has played a key role in brokering this deal. They have taken on this kind of role before, but are they cementing this role as a sort of go-between and a key regional player? Yeah, Qatar has long been positioning itself as a mediator. Uh, because obviously it's, it's a Gulf Arab state, it's a very rich Gulf Arab state, but like um, Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, uh, and the UAE, who are much more inimical uh, to Hamas, Qatar has excellent links to the Hamas leadership. Indeed, it's alleged that many of the Hamas leadership live in Qatar. So Qatar is basically cementing its long-established status as a mediator. Don't forget that Qatar and the Israelis and Hamas reached agreements previously that Qatar would funnel cash to Hamas that would actually kind of arrive in the Gaza Strip in kind of big suitcases full of money, and that was facilitated by the Israelis. So Qatar has long had this position as a kind of bridge, as a mediator between Israel uh, and indeed the West and the Hamas movement. Obviously, it's been quite a win to to get a ceasefire at this point. But do you think Qatar has the power and capacity to get a broader agreement or a more long-term solution? I don't think there's the political will for that within Israel at the moment. Bear in mind that this is there's nothing like this that's ever happened in Israel's history. Israel has been in many, many, many wars, uh, including with all of its neighbours at the same time, like in 1967, uh, and, and a similar constellation of that in 1973. Uh, and in those cases, Israel never suffered the losses that it suffered on the 7th of October. So this was a completely unprecedented event in Israel that completely reshuffled the deck and changed the status quo. Before that, the Israeli government felt that keeping Hamas in power might not be ideal, but it was a better alternative than a, a grand invasion of the Gaza Strip that would entail significant number of Israeli and Palestinian casualties and attract significant international condemnation of Israel's actions. After those attacks, Israel kind of felt 
Israel's government felt it had no choice but to go in and to declare that its goal is to destroy Hamas and to remove it from power simply because of the revulsion and shock at those attacks and the perceived need to do something immediately and to do something big. Uh, so as a result, I don't think that Qatar will have the power to reach a broader political deal because obviously their key strength, their their added value here is their links to Hamas. But Israel has said we are not interested in any kind of political agreement with Hamas. It just simply can't be done. Uh, the only way that would change is if the Biden administration manages to lean on Israel to um, a significant extent to uh, to force them to come to an agreement with Hamas. But there's little appetite for that in the US either because Hamas has delegitimized itself to such an extent with the ferocity of attacks on October the 7th and the fact that it broke indeed, it broke a long-established ceasefire. So any sort of shoots of legitimacy that Hamas might have gained uh, in the West and particularly in Washington have been uh, basically destroyed by its own attacks, by its own actions on October the 7th. So it sounds like any long-term truce is potentially a, a fair way off. But what we're not necessarily hearing is what happens the day after the fighting. There, there don't seem to be a lot of clear options about what happens then and, and what the Gaza Strip looks like. Yeah, Israel is deliberately obscuring its plan for the day after. And the reason that is, is because it has no plan for the day after. There is a significant disagreement at the height of Israel's government over what to do next. And it's the key source of disagreement between Israel and the US. The reason that Israel took longer to invade, to launch its grand invasion of the Gaza Strip, uh, after those attacks of October the 7th was because the Biden administration were leaning on Israel to pause and to consider what they would do the day afterwards, the day after if they are able to actually remove Hamas from power in the Gaza Strip, uh, because the Americans were particularly worried the Israelis don't have a plan and were simply focused on destroying Hamas. The US has learned from its experiences in Afghanistan, for example, in Iraq, and basically said to the Israelis, look, don't make our mistakes, have a plan for the day afterwards, because even if Hamas are significantly degraded, they will still be the most powerful political actor in the Gaza Strip the day after any scenario when we do actually get to a more long-term truce. So this is the key question at the moment. Will Israel be able to get someone else in the Gaza Strip? At the moment, its policies are making that less likely, which in the long run might actually make a return to power by Hamas in the Gaza Strip more likely. Dr Rob Geist-Pinfold, a lecturer in peace and security at Durham University. The state of the national economy is probably the last thing on your mind when you head to the dentist. But this week, Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock said it's one of the activities, along with trips to the hairdresser, which is pushing up inflation. Hairdressers, dentists, dining out, sporting and other recreational activities, the prices of all these services are rising strongly. This reflects domestic economic conditions. Basically, it used to be international pressures, the cost of petrol and the conflict in the Ukraine, which were pushing up inflation. But now the issue is much closer to home. Dr Angela Jackson is lead economist at Impact Economics. The hairdressers in particular uh, this week have been a little bit put out by being singled out. But look, really what the RBA governor was highlighting was that they continue to be concerned about inflation, particularly in the services sector. So we've really seen through the course of this year, you know, if we look back sort of 12 months ago, inflation was pretty much being driven by the cost of goods, by those international supply side issues coming out of the pandemic. Now what we're seeing is that 
high rate of inflation is being driven by the services sector. So things like the hairdressers, things like dentists, that is really what is underpinning the high inflation figures on an ongoing basis. And and really what she's saying is we need to get that down. And really the only way to do that is to bring down aggregate demand across the economy to take some of that price pressure off. So what can we do about that kind of inflation? Because it's not like we want people to stop going to the dentist or anything like that. Well, no, it's an interesting question, especially the dentist, because obviously a lot of dentistry is healthcare and you'd say that you know, things like going to the dentist is pretty much a non-discretionary item. That is, people have to do it. And a similar way to the hairdresser. I mean, for a lot of people, particularly in professional jobs or any job, you know, you need to go to the hairdresser on a semi-regular basis. So how much can increasing interest rates really reduce demand for those types of services? But I think really what the Reserve Bank Governor is getting at is there is still, in their view, too much heat in the economy. You know, unemployment remains below 4% at 3.7%. You know, that is, from a generational perspective, at record lows. We haven't seen that, certainly through my working life. Uh, And there remains quite a lot of strength in the economy. And so what I think she's really signalling is, look, we think we're going to have to lift rates more to slow that economy down further so that we can bring that inflation figure that is undermining people's living standards more broadly. So we can bring that inflation figure back down to that 2 to 3% range. This week, we also saw some new data out about our spending habits. And the data from ComBank IQ suggested that the economic slowdown is hitting everyone differently. In particular, young people seem to have cut back on their spending. Why is that? So I think young people probably, you know, and we're talking here 25 to 29-year-olds have seen a a 5% drop in their spending over the year, and that's a significant drop. For them, it's probably around rents going up has really, you know, hit their pockets. Possibly also they're finding it harder to pick up those additional hours of work. We were talking about unemployment before and certainly true that unemployment remains low, but we are seeing those hours worked start to level off. And so potentially, particularly for that age bracket, they might be struggling to get those extra hours of work that was underpinning higher consumption. And of course, they've eaten into those savings that built up during the pandemic, uh, this group of people. At the other end, what we're seeing is older Australians, not only are they saving more during this period, but they're also spending more. So people in the over 70s bracket have their spending up 5.4%. They're doing pretty well at the moment. You know, often they own their own homes, they don't have a mortgage, so there's no rent to pay, there's no mortgage payments to pay. They're finding that actually higher interest rates mean they're getting more return on their savings uh, that they're living off. And so life for them at that end is actually looking pretty good and they're able to keep spending as a result. It's going to be an interesting Christmas around a lot of tables this year. And if we do see more interest rate rises, they're likely to hit those younger generations and not the older generations. I mean, I'm generalising here, but across the board. So that's not necessarily the solution either. Are there any other tools the government can use to try and rein in that spending? So what's happening with the Reserve Bank at the moment, obviously it's a really blunt instrument, but it only impacts really the 35% of us that have a mortgage. For the rest of us, it doesn't have that impact. 
what things could the government look at if it wanted to broaden that tool set to bring inflation down. It, there are things around uh, taxation it could certainly look at um, that could try and, you know, increasing rates of things like the GST, for example, would, you know, slow down demand amongst those older groups and generally fiscal policy more broadly could help slow the economy down. There's been talk this week as well with Chris Richardson on the Q&A program about the role that migration is having at the moment. And certainly we are seeing a you know, record number of people uh, coming into the country. That's a really good thing for the economy. It, it increases demand, it increases economic growth, the supply of labour. But there is probably a question around the scale of that at the moment where the government could look at maybe dialling back uh, certainly some of that migration to take some pressure off the economy, slow the economy down a bit more and take that pressure off inflation. But when it comes to tightening fiscal policy, that's not necessarily what we'll be seeing in 2024, is it? Because at this point, we've actually got stage three tax cuts on the agenda. Well, the stage three tax cuts are, are probably a really important one that I would think the, the government, particularly if the bank does keep increasing interest rates, is going to be increasing pressure. Remembering that, you know, these stage three tax cuts were legislated a long time ago before the pandemic. And, you know, right now in terms of where the economy is sitting, it's probably the last thing we need is a big tax cut, you know, over $20 billion a year hitting the economy. It is only going to fuel aggregate demand and there is questionable economic benefits from these tax cuts as well. So I think the government will have, you know, a lot of things to consider heading into the next budget when it comes to fiscal policy, when it comes to taxation policy and when it comes to migration policy. At the moment, it's really being left to the Reserve Bank to do most of the heavy lifting. The federal government hasn't made things worse. I think its fiscal policy settings have been responsible but I think in the context of, you know, we have a real inflation battle on our hands and really it needs to be all hands on deck from here on in. And so the million dollar question is always, will we see more rate rises? What do you imagine we'll be seeing in coming months? Look, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, certainly the Reserve Bank governor's statements this week would indicate that, yes, I think we will see more rate rises. It will depend on the data. We still have, you know, some important releases coming out before the next meeting in December that will really determine around, you know, the monthly inflation figures will be important. The building approvals data is going to be really important and the retail trade figures are going to be important. But if they come in as expected, I I hate to say it, but I think we will get a, a very bad Christmas present, uh, especially those of us with a mortgage in terms of another rate rise before Christmas. And then it will depend into the new year. I think what the Reserve Bank has really indicated is it will do what it has to do and what it sees it needs to do to get that inflation figure down. It is in its remit to do that. And it's important to remember, you know, there is a real cost of inflation that we are seeing living standards eroded and we do want to see that figure come down. Dr Angela Jackson from Impact Economics. It's been almost four years since a mystery virus started to appear in Wuhan, China. And this week, COVID is back in the news again with a new wave threatening to ruin another holiday season. There's a different booster on the way too, but without the rates of PCR testing we've had in the past, how do we even know if we're in a wave? Dr Kudzai Kanutu is an infectious diseases specialist from Melbourne. 
So the areas that we've traditionally looked is obviously PCR numbers, but that's less reliable now. So now what we've been looking at is wastewater management. So there was some fantastic work done across multiple public health regions to actually use wastewater sampling as a signal to see, look, are we seeing more PCR evidence or genetic evidence of COVID happening in the community? And we've seen that upticking from about the end of winter, so August or thereabouts. And then we're also looking at people actually turning up to hospital with COVID. And if we look across the states, again, we saw a trend starting in August in, in Victoria and the southern states, and then that has sort of progressively spread across the country where we're seeing more people um, coming in with COVID. It's at the point now, certainly in one of my work environments, where we've actually now had spillover to staff who are also unwell and then patient, having to actually reconfigure wards again, similar to what we did way back when. We are seeing new strains. There's one called Parola and another one called Kraken. Are they of any particular concern? So whenever we see new variants coming, so Parola is, is the latest one. I always really love the way they come up with the names as well. Always a lot of fun to see what each one's going to be dubbed. Uh, but what is concerning or what, where people look for trends of concern is when you see a variant that looks genetically really different from what you've seen previously because the whole basis of our vaccine program is that we know which variants are circulating and we really target the vaccines to try and neutralise that particular type of virus. So whenever you see a new variant that looks drastically different, the question that comes up is, look, is the vaccine going to provide as much protection for this variant as it did previously? And the reason why Parola was particularly interesting from a sort of immunological and infection prevention view was that it had a lot of mutations. So over 30 new mutations, and that contrasts with maybe some of the previous variants that were similar to Omicron, which were maybe showing 8 to 10, maybe 15 new mutations. Parola had a lot more. And then we're thinking, okay, what does this mean? Does it mean that it's going to actually escape from immune control and people are now going to be in a situation where they don't really have good immunity at all? And that's why I think people always look look closely at anything that looks drift different from what we've seen before. There is also a new booster vaccine on the way. What's different about this one? So previously what we've had is what we call so bivalent mRNA vaccines so that pick up or target a couple of different variants. What we're now starting to see is that based on the predominant or prevailing um, variants within the community, we're actually starting to develop very targeted or single or monovalent, so single variant targeted vaccines, which look at, look, if we were going to sort of pick of the bunch, which one do we think is going to have the most impact? And you just target the vaccine against that. And that's exactly what this particular vaccine is trying to do. It's looking at what's happening globally and trying to pick a, you know, a version or a, you know, a, a targeted version of the vaccine that is really going to try and cover off on as many bases as possible, as opposed to sort of a more um, a widespread, we'll just put a lot of different mixes into that vaccine and, and hope to cover a lot of bases, really picking the best of the bunch and targeting as, as, as well as we can for what we're seeing in the community. But there are only 3 million doses of this new one. That's obviously well short of the Australian population and, and even short of the population that's over 65. Is that a problem? Look, the first thing to say is that the vaccines that we've had before are not, they're still effective. So they still have good effect. And if you look at the way that we are now structuring vaccine 
management programs at the moment, they're very much targeted towards a tiered approach, so a risk-based approach. So if you are somebody who, yes, is over the age of 75, you would be somebody who is strongly encouraged and recommended to have vaccination. And, you know, we're at the point now as well where we can really flex up numbers or supply more readily as opposed to the, you know, the beginning phase of, of the pandemic when, you know, we really did have significant concerns about would we be able to achieve good coverage early enough. So I think you take what you can get. And I think the other thing we bear in mind as well, um, 3 million doses, it's not something that you can get done in a week. Um, so we also need to factor in the fact that it'll actually take a bit of time and effort to get those doses out as well. But I think three million is a, is a pretty pretty good start compared to where we were, say, four years ago, um, when we were sort of wondering when we'd get anything at all. So what is the advice now for when people should get another vaccine? So the current advice is that if you're over the age of 75, you absolutely should be getting boosted every six months. But as you move into the younger age groups, for example, your adults 18 to 65, you should have had your basic vaccination. Um, it's, you should definitely have had a, a booster in 2023, particularly in that sort of older age group, so closer to 65. And then if you move into the younger groups, then we recommend that, you know, school age kids should have had some vaccination, but then the booster recommendations become more consider getting it done as opposed to a very strong recommendation for those older age groups. It's been almost four years since the first cases of COVID were reported. So is it clear now that COVID's just here forever and we'll just keep mutating? Is it possible to know that? Yeah, look, so it, it, I think that's where we're at. It becomes something that's endemic or what we cast is it's just amongst us. So it comes and goes. So similar to what we see with flu, RSV, other sort of community-based viruses, we just watch and monitor over time. If we see new patterns or trends emerging, we adapt to them and we might need to put in new controls. And the backbone of all of this will continue to be, you know, good public health advice and messaging around, you know, taking care of yourself and others when you're unwell and then the vaccine really serving as that solid base of prevention to make sure that generally across the population people are appropriately vaccinated based on their risk factors so that the people who are at greatest risk don't get really, really sick and that the rest of us sort of provide that herd immunity to prevent you know major outbreaks or risks to populations that maybe sometimes can't get access to all of those additional supports, um, including things like if you are sick, you now also have the option to get oral medications um, to prevent you getting worse and getting sicker. And we're seeing some really encouraging trends there with general practice in particular starting to pick up and support people um, with that additional layer of treatment and support as well if you are diagnosed with COVID. Dr Kudzai Kanutu, an infectious diseases specialist from Melbourne. And that's our episode for the week. Subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. It's produced by Laura Corrigan, Anna John and me, Madeline Jenner. Catch you next time.